0: And now back to Lifeline with
1: Craig Roberts. Let me read something to you. Pay very close attention, if you would, please. Class, in session. Is loud enough? There you go. The rapid growth of the world's population over the last 100 years results from a difference between the rate of birth and the rate of death. The human population will increase by 1 billion people in the next decade. This is like adding the whole population of China to the world's population. The growth in human population around the world affects all people through its impact on the economy and environment. The current rate of population growth is now a significant burden to human well-being. Understanding the factors which affect population growth Growth patterns can help us plan for the future. This unit consists of core knowledge about the causes and consequences of overpopulation, lesson plans, teacher resources, student reading list, and a list of speakers. Although this unit is primarily intended for students in grades five through eight, teachers in both elementary and high school can use this unit to explore key ideas and concepts about the population explosion. Close quote. Now that is a foreword from a teacher's instruction handbook in use in American public schools today. What of this matter of modern day overpopulation? Is it fact or is it largely fiction? And how much of the new green is actually just the old red repackaged? With some answers, we're joined now by Stephen Mosher. He is president of the Population Research Institute, a nonprofit research group whose goals are to expose the myth of overpopulation, to expose human rights abuses committed in population control programs, and to make the case that people are the world's greatest resource. Stephen, a delight to have you on the program.
2: No, thanks for having me.
1: Let's talk first about some of this agenda. You heard what I had to read from the forward of this uh, teacher's handbook, which sounds like the whole notion of overpopulation, its impact on the globe, and sustainability is sort of a fait accompli. And so let's begin teaching our kids these lessons at a very early age. What say ye?
2: Well, I say that it sounds like it was written by my former colleague at Stanford University, uh, not Professor Paul Ehrlich. In 1968, and uh, of course, it sounds as if whoever wrote it hadn't learned anything else in the meantime, because it is wrong, wrong, wrong. It is wrong that the world's population is going to add a billion people in the next few years. Population growth rates are slowing down. More than half the countries of the world are now having too few people, not too many. Uh, and the rest of the world, China's one-child policy, India's two-child policy, is rapidly following suit. And the idea we should reduce the number of people on the planet to make ourselves better off it is total nonsense because we need more creative human intelligences at work, not fewer. And if you want to visit the future of depopulation, go to Japan today where they are desperately trying to get out of the demographic recession that they've been in for 25 years. What is a demographic recession? It's where you're having too few children to maintain the current population to too few young people coming into the workforce, buying homes and cars, starting new businesses. Japan has been in recession since 1990, and it's a result of the fact that they're only averaging one three children per couple which is a recipe for uh, demographic disaster and in
1: fact aren't we even seeing the same effect in many parts of Europe that in fact there are some absolutely. countries like France for example that are that are quote unquote maintaining only because of new immigration?
2: Well absolutely Europe really uh, the European countries uh, Spain, Italy France Germany, Uh, Those peoples better decide who they want to give their countries to because they obviously don't want it enough to populate it themselves. They're having the Germans, the French, the Italians, the Spaniards are having about 1.2, 1.3 children per couple. Again, like Japan, declining in population were it not for immigration. Um, And they have to have immigration. Of course, most of the immigration into those European countries comes from North Africa and the Middle East and brings with it other problems.
1: The one big buzzword that seems to tie into most of these arguments, whether it's an argument to try and reduce the population or address um, CO emissions, things of this sort, is the notion of sustainability, meaning uh, to what degree is the planet capable of not only meeting the needs of those of us that call this place home, but but also as we add more people to the population, <laughs> pardon me, um, how much of an impact will each of those individuals have on the carbon footprint, saying, Things of this sort, this this notion of sustainability—just how realistic is it to the argument?
2: Well, you know, uh, sustainability is really, in in eco speak, a synonym for limits. And so, when we talk about sustainable growth, when we hear the phrase sustainable growth, what they're really talking about is limiting economic growth. When we hear the word phrase sustainable population, we're really talking about limiting population or population control because the idea that you can dictate how many people can live on the planet at a certain standard of living is complete nonsense i mean look i'm an anthropologist uh i was the first american social scientist in china back in 1979 when the chinese were still relatively poor and when the world led by paul ehrlich led by the 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 uh The radical environmental movement said China has too many people. If it is to develop, it must embark upon a one-child policy. Well, that's what they've done. They've killed off 400 million people over the last 35 years. And now they're facing an economic crisis because they have a nationwide labor shortage. They have the fastest aging population in human history. They're talking now about abandoning the one-child policy. I don't think they're going to do it in total. They'll go to a two-child policy. But they have set in train so many problems uh, for themselves over the long run that China's long-term economic prospects are now less rosy than India's because the Indians are still having a little over two children whereas the Chinese are averaging slightly over one. They've compromised their future. They've compromised economic development. However well they're doing now, they're going to fall into a demographic trap that they laid for themselves 35 years ago, and there appears now to be no way out.
1: What of the counterargument to your points that says, we need, Stephen, to keep in mind the planet's ability or inability in this argument to provide enough food enough portable water, enough of the basic resources necessary to sustain human life. And if we continue at this pace, the fact of the matter is we can't plant gardens fast enough or farm fast enough and be able to produce enough water to meet the needs of a growing population.
2: Okay, well, here, here, here are two arguments uh, that you've neatly encapsulated. One is that we're running out of food, and one is that we're running out of water. And the argument we're running out of food was rebutted uh, about 10 years ago by the Food and Agricultural Organization, which is part of the U.N. system, by the way. So these are not not conservative people making these predictions. The Food and Agricultural Organization said that with current agricultural technology, we could now feed between 12 to 14 billion people on the planet. Well, you know and I know. There are only a few more than 7 billion people on the planet now. Uh, People should also know that the world's population is never going to double again. We're never going to get to 12 billion or 14 billion. So the food problem, yeah, we have a problem distributing food to some poor people in poor countries. There's still hunger in the world. I don't deny that. But there is no global food shortage, nor will there ever be. And as far as water is concerned, my goodness, 70% of the planet's surface is covered by water to an average depth of 6,000 feet. So there's plenty of H2O. Now, we may have to desalinate it. Uh, they do that quite well in some Middle Eastern countries. We may have to conserve it. We may have to build more dams and, and build canals. Um, but we don't have a global water shortage either. And as far as the carrying capacity of the world, you know, you know, if you tell me what level of technology we're talking about, I can tell you what the carrying capacity of the world is. I can tell you that as an anthropologist, when we were back in the days of hunting and gathering, when we had no settled agriculture and we were basically dependent on what we could stalk and kill hunting and what we could find grubbing on the earth by, by, uh, by gathering, we could survive in the temperate zone at about a population density of two people per square mile. With settled agriculture, we raised that to 100 people per square mile, then to 1,000 with irrigation, uh, in some of the best uh, irrigated uh, rice paddy areas in South China, where I lived for a couple of years, you had two and three thousand people per square per square mile. Uh, but then we get to industry, we get to industrialization, and then we have the communications, uh, the internet revolution. And with each advance in technology, we're able to support more people. Now, if there were no more technological advances, if no more scientific advances were made, if no more Nobel prizes in, in in physics and chemistry were, were handed out, and and our technolo- technological advance stopped, then that would put a limit, uh, eventually, on the number of people that we could have on the planet. But I don't see any reason to believe that man is going to begin checking his intelligences at the door and not make any more advances in technology. Well, in
1: fact, ironically, about 100 years ago, there was a bill that was created that was under discussion and I forget whether it was the Senate or the House, but one, one side of, of Congress or the other, uh, that essentially was a proposal to shut down the U.S. Patent Office, arguing that post the invention of the light bulb, the Victrola, things of this sort, that everything that possibly could could be invented, had had been invented, and therefore there was no need for a U.S. patent office. I I wonder what Steve Jobs would have thought if he'd (laughs) called Washington and said, sorry, that iPhone, iPad uh, thing you're thinking of, nah, we don't need that.
2: You, You can't have that idea because we've decided you won't. Um, yeah, that's the only way to stop human progress, is by having the government intervene and force people to stop being creative, to force them to stop using their intelligence to solve problems. Uh, that, that we cause sometimes by our numbers. I mean, nobody would have liked to have lived in a city in the Middle Ages because they didn't have uh, you know, running water, they didn't have a way of disposing of their sewage. But we invented ways to solve that problem, which was caused by a large numbers of human beings living in a small area. And I'm convinced that any problem that's caused by our numbers can be solved by those same people, um, using, you putting their intelligence to work. Uh, who would have thought that, uh, 50 years ago that we would be taking sand from the beach and taking the silica from it and making it into silicon chips that make it possible for us to talk to, uh, You know, on on the phone, across the world, on the Internet, around the world, in in fractions of a second. Um, Again, a resource we didn't know existed 50 years ago is now making it very easy for us to communicate cheaply around the world. And, I mean, more people in Africa have cell phones now than have running water.
1: Isn't that amazing? Let's pause on that point. Stephen Mosher is with us today, president of Population Research Institute. We're trying to sort of figure through many of these arguments, arguments, quite frankly, that are taught as absolute fact in public schools today, as I suggested just a few moments ago. The big question is, as we, yes, I have an understanding about uh, caring for the environment, and nothing here in today's conversation should be suggestive of the idea that we need to uh, uh, not care for the environment or not live and act responsibly in, in caring and in providing the stewardship over our planet. But that said, how much of these proposals related to caring for the environment or dealing with the quote-unquote population really get down to a core issue of not sustainability, but rather the attempt by some elite to manage and control the lives of others. We'll riddle that one as well as our conversation with Stephen Mosher from Population Research Institute continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: All right, welcome back to the conversation. You know, there's a there's a curious little factoid out there, and I don't know how accurate this is, but hopefully, our guest tonight, Stephen Mosher, can can educate us on, on this. And that is that I, I read at some point um, not long ago that approximately three percent of the planet's total land mass is actually populated by development. Three percent. Now, you would suspect, even with Six billion of us going for a ride on this spinning sphere of solar driftwood that we would somehow be able to manage to uh, get along here. Granted, some of the uh, remaining 97 percent may not be all that usable, but I, I just wonder, Stephen Mosher, president of the Population Research Institute, how accurate that figure really is. And if it is relatively accurate, what's all the fuss about?
2: Well, it, it's 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 uh, much ado about nothing. in, in one sense, uh, my favorite example is is it actually doesn't use percentages. It uses the state of Texas because it turns out you can you can fit the entire population of the world 7 billion, 7.1 billion people into the state of Texas. Give them a single family dwelling with a front and backyard, and everyone fits. And the rest of the world would be empty. Now. I'm not suggesting everyone move to the state of Texas. No, but
1: some people like that idea.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I understand. I'm from California. You understand, and I left in 1995 for for rural Virginia. I live in the Shenandoah Valley on a uh, on a uh, on a uh, beef and cattle farm, and uh, I quite enjoy rural life. So um, I don't I don't look back much. But California is a great state in many ways. Still. But but you can fit the entire population of the world into the state of Texas, uh, and and that's just a way of illustrating that the world is still largely uh, a pretty empty place in in terms of human beings.
1: How much of this comes down to an
2: agenda, then?
1: I mean, if as you're suggesting that uh, the planet is indeed providing or capable of providing sustainability for all of its occupants, and, you know, certainly from a biblical perspective, my listeners would would be of the opinion that if God created the planet, surely he must have had a plan to create one that would sustain the capacity of a growing population. So that said, you've got to wonder, uh, so much of the so-called green agenda that goes down to everything from controlling carbon emissions. I always think it's ironic that they seem to focus almost singularly on the first world, the United States, and have little to do in terms of providing serious controls on some of the third world's biggest polluters like India, like China, like Russia. But then you come into things such as China's one-child policy. We talk about the way in which abortions are being promoted around the planet. My goodness, I, I read something recently that Ban uh, ki the Secretary General of the United Nations, said that priority should be given to provide abortions to women in, quote, conflict-affected countries, close quote. How much of this is, and and, and listen to my language here, I'm curious, how much of this new green is an awful lot of the old red just repackaged?
2: Well, in this sense, it certainly is. In the sense that uh, the... the, uh the communists were all about control. The communists wanted to control all the means of production. As you know, they wanted to control the land, the factories, and the workers themselves. And they wanted to destroy all the mediating institutions. They wanted to destroy the church, of course. They wanted to destroy the family. In in, in, in the more radical communist regimes, they actually, in Mao's China, for example, in the 50s, they had the men living in male dormitories and the women living in female dormitories and all the kids being raised. In state-run nurseries, uh, so they want to destroy all the all the things that stand in the way of total control of society by by the state, and in in that case by the by the Communist Party. Well, now you have that same goal of control, but in a green package. And I will tell you this: if 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 I can control how far you drive and what kind of fuel you use in your car and how much energy you use to heat your home and how much water you use and what sort of things you can eat Um, at the end of the day i control your life and and in china of course they take it one step further they control how many children you can have and that is the goal of the population control movement and ultimately the goal of many of the the people in the radical environmental movement, but they want a worldwide population control program because they would like to see our numbers drastically reduced. In China, they, they, they talk about reducing the population of over 1 billion down to 600 million. In the United States, the uh, some of the groups talk about the carrying capacity of the United States being 90 million or 135 million. Uh, Which raises the question, what are they going to do with the other 200 million of
1: us? Well, and you want to take us back to basically World War II population levels, suggesting somehow that even the growth spurs that we saw during the so-called baby boom generation, those born between 1946 and 1964, that somehow all of that's unsustainable as well.
2: And it makes no sense, because if you look over the last few hundred years, as our numbers have grown, our well-being has grown even faster. In the United States in 1800, the per capita income was about $300. We were about three times better off than the rest of the world. Uh, The per capita income worldwide in 1800, when we had about a billion people, was $100 a year. Basically, hand-to-mouth subsistence living. Um, Then you get to 1927, you've got $2 so you've doubled the number of people on the planet what has per capita income done it's gone it's gone to $500 you get to 3 billion in 1960 and per capita income is 1500 you get to 6 billion in 2000 per capita income is 5000 today at 7 billion plus we have about $9000 per capita income so our per capita income has just skyrocketed while our population growth is now leveling off. Um, So the more people we have, the more goods and services we can produce, and the better off we all are. And, you know, a whole generation of kids is being raised to think that the socially responsible thing to do is not to marry, or if you marry, not to have more than one child. And in fact, the socially responsible thing to do is to marry and and to replace yourself, or or to have an extra child, to be generous in in, uh, bringing children into the world, because Those children will make the world a better place. They will produce more than they will consume over over their lifetimes. They will generate goods and services. They may, some of them, uh, cure diseases that we suffer from now. Or they may invent new products or new means of producing old products more cheaply. By cutting the number of people born, we are compromising our future and making ourselves all poorer. And that, you know, that, that of course, is what we see happening in China today. China is poorer now because they're missing 400 billion of the most productive, hardworking people the world has ever seen, the Chinese people. They've been eliminated because of the one-child policy.
1: In quiet moments, I often uh, will sometimes find myself pondering, um, when thinking of the topic of abortion, whether or not we might have accidentally or intentionally so, I should say, um, put to death the very person who would have been the one to find the cure for cancer or somebody else that would have been a great leader of the nation that fell victim to the abortion knife because in this country in 1973 we decided that it wasn't life, it was about privacy. Let's take a time out. We're going to come back to more of our discussion today. If if you're feeling mildly disturbed by this conversation, um, that's good. Uh, I'm, I'm actually happy for that. We should be disturbed by what Stephen Mosher is sharing with us tonight because it's a part of an agenda. And it's not only an agenda that deals with being anti-democracy, anti-capitalist, anti-freedom, uh, anti-Christian, um, it quite frankly, even goes to the heart from a biblical perspective of being anti-God. I mean, it, it, can you imagine? We, from a Christian, from a biblical perspective, would look at a child and say, you young boy or young girl, are created in the very image of God, that very God himself breathed life into you, as scripture tells us. And yet, if you take it from the perspective of those involved in the so-called green movement or those worried about overpopulation, they don't see children as precious gifts from God, but rather as dirty, polluting carbon emitters. We'll pause on that point while you ponder.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: All right, back to our conversation today with Stephen Mosher, president of Population Research Institute. By the way, more information available on the web at POP.org. That's POP.org. One of this push that we're seeing in many countries toward um, not just telling the folks we're going to limit to one child, as they do in China, but actually engaging in aggressive abortion campaigns overseas. I I quoted from the general chair of, the Secretary General, rather, of the UN, Ban Ki-moon, who made a remark concerning, quote, prioritizing to provide abortions to women in conflict-affected countries. What's that all about?
2: Well, that's all about the idea that uh, that, uh, if you have too many people uh, you necessarily will have wars and civil unrest. And, of course, the one doesn't follow from the other at all. If if you have uh, a robust population uh, with large, intact families, uh, you're not going to have social unrest. You're going to have kids who are well-socialized and, and who make a positive contribution to society. Um the, the idea that all conflict is ultimately related to population growth is uh, is simply simply not true. But what it does do, Craig, is it skews our whole foreign aid in the direction of promoting abortion, promoting population control, promoting offensive, abusive sterilization campaigns uh, around the world. In not just in China, you know, we were we were one of the ones. Countries in 1979 uh, that encouraged China to embark upon a one-child policy. We funded the organization, the UN Population Fund, the Population Control Agency of the UN, that gave $50 million to China's one-child policy and is still supporting that policy today. I was involved in the struggle to get funding cut off to the UN Funding and Population Fund because I thought that American taxpayers really would not want to be involved in a program where women were arrested for the crime of being pregnant, where they were taken by force to surgical centers, where they were given abortions, sometimes coercively, and then subsequently sterilized so they wouldn't be back the year in, in years following with another, carrying another illegal child. I was an eyewitness to forced abortion and forced sterilization in China. But that was driven in part by this idea that the world is overpopulated, China is overpopulated. We're still spending in countries like uh, Kenya today. I, I heard uh, about the campaign to um, reduce the number of children dying from, uh, from parasites in, in places in Africa, for example, and in Asia. And the fact is, we're not doing, as a, as a people, very much to combat tropical diseases, malaria, typhus, typhoid, and the rest. We spend a lot of our foreign aid budget trying to reduce the number of children born in poor countries instead of trying to help those children who are born survive uh, deadly diseases that are easily curable i mean we spend 70 dollars uh, in kenya for uh, on population control programs and promoting abortion and sterilization for every 1 dollar we spend on public health so there's a huge disproportion a huge disparity there uh, we're not listening to the better angels of our nature we're we're just responding to the idea that uh, that, that children are just little um, little carbon emitters, and the fewer we have, the better off we will all be.
1: Well, there's also a major push to try and sort of um, re-educate, I'll use that term because it's popular within communist circles back in the day, um, to re-educate people on this issue. I mean, number one, the United Nations has been promoting the idea for many decades that abortion, in fact, is should be considered a universal right, right? And as the United States, along with others, have engaged in these uh, aggressive abortion campaigns overseas, you better believe that organizations like Planned Parenthood see this as an opportunity to make some money. Uh, I mean, they're you know, as much as they try to paint this in terms of you know providing freedom and liberty and uh, uh, human rights and all of that, and uh, once again, the sustainability word creeps into the conversation. The, the reality is The as much as we have the influence of a culture of death in our own. Society post Roe versus way that this is this is spreading all around the around the planet.
2: Yeah, we're we're trying to export the lifestyle of of Hollywood and Manhattan to relatively innocent, untouched corners of the world. I think back to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, who spent twenty uh, some million dollars in Kenya trying to influence the government to in, into legalizing abortion, which it did, which it probably wouldn't have without this, this pressure from the United States, without this funding from the United States, that's a violation of democratic principles because the Kenyan people are overwhelmingly pro-life. But we undermine democracy in pursuit of this uh, this idea that abortion is a human right. And, you know, the worst thing I've heard recently, Craig, comes from a bishop, Catholic bishop in northern Nigeria from the Diocese of Oyo in northern Nigeria, which is close to the Boko Haram terrorist uh, controlled territory, and he recently said we're trying to get help from the United States to fight terrorism, but the State Department tells us that the U.S. will not give us help to fight Boko Haram unless we legalize abortion uh, and legalize uh, and and, uh, and and legalize other things that we find morally offensive. So think about that. What is the priority of the? the, the current administration if it refuses to fight terrorism unless a country legalizes abortion.
1: Well, it it definitely shows, again, as you point out, a big part of the agenda that goes beyond just this notion of trying to do the right thing for the country or the right thing for the planet. Uh, It it comes back to this issue of attempting, I think, in some ways to to not only um, justify our own behavior, but then to influence and control the behavior of others
2: yeah it's a, it's a kind of ideological colonialism you know and it's a it's a sad thing that the the same countries many of the same countries that that 60 years ago 70 years ago had colonial empires in africa are now going back uh, great britain france and of course our own country which didn't have that empire but is now a big player in africa and poor asian countries and saying to those countries that uh, that you're having too many children, you have to restructure your family, you have to educate your, your people to accept abortion, uh, to reduce the number of children being born. I mean, what, isn't that an intrusive violation of the right of peoples to self-determination, to determine for themselves the, the number and spacing of their children, to determine for themselves what their laws governing families And and children will be. I mean, one of our foreign policy goals is supposed to be promoting democracy. And yet at the same time, we're out promoting these radical anti-people notions that work against democracy that undermine democratically passed laws in countries in Latin America, for example, and in countries like Africa.
1: We're going to pause. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. Stephen Mosher, my guest, president of Population Research Institute. When we come back, we'll talk more about the control issue and what is a very blatant inconsistency when it comes to application of issues such as saving the planet from greenhouse gases as Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Here is a big part of the well, The kind word is inconsistency. The more accurate word is hypocrisy of so much of the Green Movement that it, that it seems to, to separate the leaders from the followers. And ironically, it very much mirrors uh, many of the ideals of communism. And at the end of the day, communism is a theory that essentially has a small group at the top with centralized power over everybody else. They're suggesting in many ways, I think, the same thing when it comes to going green. Witness, for example, one of the biggest hypocrites in this arena, none other than Al Gore himself, who at the same time that he was busy uh, producing a movie for which he won an award, and I still haven't figured that part out yet, um, and uh, promoting uh, the, the inconvenient truth, it turned out that the bigger, more inconvenient truth for Al Gore it was that while he's telling you to reduce the size of your footprint or risk the annihilation of our planet, Al Gore had a mansion in Tennessee whose electric and heating bill was 30 thousand dollars a year. That is 20 times the national average. Now, albeit his home is also four times larger than the average house size. But regardless, it shows the degree to which many of those that promote this green notion are really at the core hypocrites, either making money off of all of this, as Al Gore has to some obscene sums, or simply trying to centralize power. What of that? Is the new green the old red? Are there vestiges of the ideals of communism? lurking behind a lot of this it sure uh, to me Stephen mosher seems to be the case
2: i, I think that the, the the same the same idea of a of a of a tiny elite uh, cognoscenti people who know better than we do how our lives should be run and what we should eat and what we should drink and how much energy we should use, what kind of homes we live in, what kind of cars we drive, and how many square feet we should be allotted in living space, for example, and whether or not we should be allowed to travel, um, wherever we want, whenever we want, whether or not we should have to wear a kind of like, like a energy equivalent of a Fitbit, a little watch that would monitor our energy usage and report us to government authorities if we use too much. Uh, you know, that may sound like the stuff of uh, a science fiction horror novel, but. Uh, just today I heard the Environmental Protection Agency is getting prepared to monitor how many showers and, and how long our showers are when we travel uh, and stay in hotels, that so the hotels will have a little monitoring devices to report to government authorities, a central data collection station, about how much water we're, we're using when we're on the road. So uh, the sort of idea that... Uh, that that a small group of people who are who are highly educated can better run our lives than we ourselves it is the classic the classic totalitarian mistake, uh, and it's a mistake because no government bureaucrat, however well educated, can ever make the right decisions for you and your family or me and my family because they simply don't know our individual circumstances and the effort to do it. To take control of our families and take control of our lives would result in a massive, massive loss of freedom.
1: Why does it seem as if, particularly post the uh, the Big Earth Summit down in Rio in the early 90s, why does it seem as if there is a pretty inconsistent application of, of much of this movement in enforcing in compliance with green standards, lower low emissions, things of that sort? And I ask that question because here, California, as you know, you lived here, Stephen, we have air resources boards. They tell us at winter time don't burn a fire in your fireplace because it's going to oh. destroy the air. We we have summer gas versus winter gas. We have all of these restrictions and controls. They've even promoted the notion, that both statewide as well as nationally, that we ought to start paying taxes based on the amount of mileage that we drive every year. I mean, on and on the list, the draconian list of controls goes. And yet, as much as I see this going on in a country like the United States, where we do make efforts, there are emission standards, and we do try to, to I think in some reasonable ways, uh, control uh, pollution emissions from industry, from private individuals, et cetera, et cetera. And yet I have traveled with some frequency to countries like India, like China on multiple occasions, Uh the former Soviet Union on multiple occasions. And to this day, they continue to be some of the most outlandish, grossest polluters I have ever seen. People forget that in the 2007 Olympics, Beijing actually decreed a moratorium and shut down all heavy, medium, and light-duty manufacturing in about a 200-mile radius around the capital of Beijing, where the Games were being held, for 20 days prior to the Olympics and 10 days after the Olympics closed, I guess figuring some folks might stay and linger as tourists and things of that sort, to simply give the impression that things were better. Of course, once all the visiting athletes and the tourists went back home, China went back to its gross polluting. Why does this debate, particularly on the global scene, never come back and say, wait a minute, the United States is being asked to pony up. We're being asked to reduce. We have a population that's less than a third the size of China, a third the size of India, under certainly is not competitive with Russia, and yet it doesn't seem as if they have to play by the rules, only us. Why is that?
2: Well, one word, money. We have all the money because this is not, this is not just about cleaning up the air and cleaning up the planet, you can do that with local laws that are enforced uh, reasonably on polluters, which, of course, we all think ought to be done. The trouble in Russia and the trouble in China and to some extent in India is that if you own a polluting factory, it's cheaper for you to pay off a local official to turn the blind eye to your pollution than to install the scrubbing equipment on your smokestacks that would prevent it from reaching the atmosphere. And so that's what you do in China. If you have a factory that, that uh, is, is giving off uh, hydrogen sulfide or something uh, that irritates people, that potentially is car- car- carcin- uh, carcinogen, uh, you simply uh, go pay off the local official uh, responsible, and he will look the other way. Uh, in the United States, that kind of bribery gets you arrested and thrown in jail. So there isn't the kind of free press in Russia and, and China and to some extent in India that allows ordinary people to band together and protest and take their pe- petition the government for redress. Uh, there isn't a Bill of Rights in China, for example, and if, and if the local villagers go unmasked to protest a polluting factory, they will often be met with deadly force uh, from riot police who are, of course, working for the government, not for the people, and who are there under orders from the local police chief, who too has been paid off to protect the factory even as it is polluting against the interests of the villagers, even though they are dying from lung cancer. So that's the kind of corruption you find elsewhere in the world. But The United States and Europe have the money, and this is, at base, a giant wealth transfer scheme because there's nothing that the oligarchs in poor countries, the dictators, the tyrants in Africa, Asia, Latin America would like better than to have the United States and Europe in some sort of spasm of guilt transfer a trillion dollars into their Swiss bank accounts on the, on the uh, grounds that, yes, we, uh, we polluted and now we're, we're paying back the people of the world for the pollution we caused. Uh, that's what this is about. It's about transferring wealth from countries that produce goods and services to countries that don't produce very much in the way of goods and services and are therefore poor.
1: Hmm. Redistribution of wealth. Why does that sound like a basic concept that was promoted by Marxism and Leninism?
2: it does have a very familiar ring to it for those of us who grew up in the, in the last uh, in the last century. I lived in Asia for 10 years. I lived in China for several years. And China has uh, the worst pollution in the world, I believe by far. You know, they they did have to shut down the factories before the Beijing Olympics because they wanted they wanted the people visiting Beijing to be able to see the sun. Well, <laughs> This is most true. Of the time, most of the time when you go to Beijing these days, unless it's a windy winter day, you cannot see the sun because the sun is obscured by black clouds. And people wear those gauze masks over their face, not because they have a cold, but because they're trying to prevent at least some of that particulate matter, that soot uh, and the sulfur and, and the other uh, minerals from entering their lungs. And, and, and making them sick.
1: Stephen, we sure appreciate the education tonight. I imagine there are a lot of resources available for listeners on your website.
2: We've been working on these issues for 20 years. The website is pop.org, P-O-P.org.
1: Well, great. Well, I again appreciate your time. Good to have a former Californians on the program and uh, keep up the good work. Stephen Mosher, president of the Population Research Institute. Details again on the web at pop. That's P-O-P dot O-R-G, pop dot O-R-G. And our thanks to Stephen Mosher for being with us tonight.